Good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. My name is Christopher. I am one of the pastors here on staff at, at River West. It's been a while since I've, I've been up here opening God's Word. I've been teaching the gospel class with, with, uh, with Derek, and it's just awesome to, to be in here. And we believe that God is going to speak a powerful word through our series in the book of Romans this morning. Do you believe that? We're grateful if you're here, if you're a guest or you're tuning in online. We've been walking through the book of Romans, one of the most influential documents, letters ever recorded. But before we dive back into chapter three this morning, I want you to imagine for a moment that you receive a special invitation to participate in a Q&A session with one of the best-selling authors of all time. And I'm not talking about J.K. Rowling or James Patterson, but the Apostle Paul himself. Just imagine for a moment that Paul is going from city to city in the United States, and he's conducting these special readings, and with small groups of of people, he's opening it up to questions from the crowd. And you hear incredibly that the Apostle Paul is coming to conduct one of these special Q&A sessions and readings in Portland at Powell's downtown. (laughs) The laughter ensues. Knowing what we know about Paul's writings, I am not sure his reception in the city of roses would be that warm. He would be canceled for sure, most assuredly. In fact, there would more likely be protests in the streets as this event was being conducted, maybe even in the days leading up to it. But let's continue to imagine, this is just a story, that somehow you receive a special invitation and you show up downtown. You haven't been downtown in two years, but you want to meet the Apostle Paul. You're a big fan. You show your ID at the door. You make your way through the crowd of protesters, and somebody lets you in. And once you're seated, a hush falls over the group of attendees, a special select group of about 50 people. And you see this man aged by sufferings and shipwrecks and adversity. His body's wrangled. His voice sounds ancient. It's the voice of a man that suffered. But witness the glory of God firsthand. He steps up to a podium just like this, and he takes the microphone and begins to read from the first three chapters of the book of Romans. Then he pauses and opens the floor to questions. What kind of questions would people ask? What kind of questions would you ask if you were given the opportunity to ask Paul anything? This morning, as we continue our journey in Romans, we're going to come to a passage in chapter 
three that essentially functions like a Q&A session with the Apostle Paul. A back and forth series of questions and responses that on the surface might seem to be asking the kinds of questions that we would not deem relevant and pressing to our lives today. However, as I have spent the better half of my life reading, studying, poring over the scriptures, I found that it's oftentimes passages like this that we might be tempted to rush past as we're reading or dismiss that end up yielding the most surprising discoveries. So this is one of those passages. And if you know anything here at River West, the more obscure the passage is, the more likely it is that I will get it assigned to me. <laughs> and so Pastor Adam assigned me a passage of questions and answers. That's what he did. But it's amazing. Because God has something special, I believe, by his Holy Spirit that he wants to impress and reveal to us. But it's going to take some thinking. So if you're ready and with that, let's turn to this Q&A session with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. This is God's word. To help us see the logic of Paul's argument, in this section of scripture, I put together a slide and I want you to see this right here to see the structure and in this back and forth, how Paul hook and eyes everything together. The questions are in blue and the responses are in white on that slide. So what we see in verses one to eight is there's this back and forth dialogue, question and answer, much like the volley in a tennis match, a back and forth. And so Paul here will raise eight questions, and they're all in blue, and they're paired together. So these pairs of questions show up in the odd verses in this passage. In verse 1, 
in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 7. You have these two pairs of questions, and then Paul will address those questions in the verses in white right there and respond to these objections. Then the objections come in verses, or the responses come in verses 2 and 4 and 6 and 8. So in total, four pairs of questions and four answers. Then at the very end of the passage, Paul will ask his own final question and give one final statement that actually sums up everything that he has written about since chapter 2 to this point in chapter 3. Does that make sense? Seeing it on the screen, the back and forth, and then summarizing everything in verse 9 with one last question and answer. Now, if you pay close attention to the questions, they actually tell us a lot about the audience that is raising these objections and questions to Paul. And it seems clear from the text that these questions and these verses aren't coming from Gentile converts, from Gentile Christians, or their questions would be the kinds of questions that you and I would likely ask of Paul given the opportunity. They would be questions actually that are directed to the things that he wrote about in chapter one, starting in about verse 18, going to verse 32, questions directed around the idea of God's wrath or judgment. Questions about idolatry, what constitutes idolatry, or sexual immorality, or the list of other vices that Paul wrote about back in chapter 1, as a quick recap, where Paul lists these sins that Gentiles not only engaged in, but they were just commonly accepted in Gentile pagan culture. But in chapter 3, None of those questions are coming up from anything that Paul has declared or affirmed in chapter 1 of Romans. They're all questions directed to the things that Paul has written and been developing in chapter 2, which tells us these questions are coming from the religious crowd, not the Gentile irreligious crowd. They're questions coming from Jews who, hearing this letter read in synagogue or homes, or taking issue at the way that Paul is talking about the law and circumcision and what it means to be Jewish. And the text seems to actually suggest to it that the Jews are so infuriated by Paul's argument and the things that he's going around teaching that they're beginning to slander him and spread false accusations about what he believes and teaches. However, here's what's incredible and worth taking note. In Paul's response, he doesn't dismiss these religious critics or what they have to say. Instead, he humbly and with conviction, he engages their objections and accusations, which says a lot about the kind of pastor and leader Paul was. 
Rather than just wanting to win a theological argument, the Apostle Paul wanted to see the gospel win over the hearts of his Jewish brothers and sisters. You see, friends, we oftenly mistakenly conclude that the gospel is really for irreligious people that haven't met Jesus, for the unchurched, immoral folks. But Paul, as a religious Jew, knew better firsthand. Deep down, he knew that no matter how religious or moral you and I dedicate ourselves to be, only the gospel can set us free from our sins and turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Amen? Or another way to put it, simply... Religious people need the gospel too. Religious people need the gospel. That's the main point that Paul is actually after in this section of Romans right here. That's why he's responding the way he responds. is because the religious Jews need the gospel too. And you and I, irrespective of our spiritual journey and how religious we are, we all need the gospel. So what we're going to do today for the remainder of our time is we're going to see how Paul responds to each of these questions and objections and helps the religious crowd that's raising these questions see their need for something more than religion. We're going to follow each of these questions and objections And through Paul's response, we're going to see how he applies the logic of the gospel to their hearts. And since this is the first Sunday of Lent, along the way, I'm going to suggest some practices that can prepare our hearts as we approach Holy Week as a community. How does that sound? Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, there's like two of you that are still with us. It's great. You're really excited. I can, I can tell. Thanks for that. All right, we're going to start with the first objection. In verses 1 and 2, we see that the first objection is actually centered around the theme, if you're taking notes, the theme of God's people. Objection number 1 is centered around this idea of God's people, the Jews. So in verses 1 and 2, let's read this again. These questions that come to Paul said, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Beginning right here, this first objection is centered to an accusation from real people. There's many commentators that believe right here in Romans that Paul is engaging in what is called a diatribe, a back and forth question and answer, which is actually in many schools of philosophy, how to impress your audience with the truth is to have essentially an argument with yourself or with an imaginary objector. Socrates and other philosophers would regularly engage in this. But we know from reading the passage that Paul's not having an imaginary 
argument with imaginary people, but there was real people that were going around slanderously charging Paul of promoting heresy. So this is not Paul just having an imaginary argument with imaginary people. It would have really no gravity, no significance. There's real objectors that are essentially telling Paul, now listen to this, you're anti-Semitic, Paul. You're anti-Jewish. You don't care about God's people. And you could see with that kind of accusation going around why Paul had to engage with this religious crowd to snuff out that accusation. For a quick recap, last week, if you were here or you've been following along with our series online, Pastor Adam helped us to see that what Paul was doing in chapter 2 is he wanted his Jewish brothers and sisters in Rome to understand that their ancestral ties to Abraham and their physical circumcision did not guarantee them a place in God's kingdom. So just the fact that they're Jewish and physically circumcised doesn't mean they're in. Disconnected from a heart that trusts in Jesus, these outward religious signs have no power to save or change us in any way. So anticipating the objections From Jewish readers in Rome, Paul starts off by asking, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the advantage of circumcision? Then Paul, maybe to their surprise, he gives an emphatic positive answer to these questions in verse 2. Look, in verse 2, he says, actually, much in every way. Paul says, The fact that you're circumcised and you're descendants of Abraham is a tremendous privilege, a tremendous advantage. Then Paul goes on to explain what these privileges or these advantages are. He says, to begin with, I have a list. Number one on the list the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, this is what I love about studying a book like Romans. I've never noticed this fact before. Paul, after saying much in every way. Now, to begin with, number one, you've been given the oracles of God, which is just a fancy way of saying the scriptures, or specifically the Old Testament promises. Paul actually seems to forget about everything else that he wants to say. Privilege number one, being entrusted with God's word, is such a massive privilege that Paul doesn't even get to privilege number two, number three, number four, or number five. Because he gets hung up, almost enraptured in thought, around how enormous of a privilege it is to hold in your hands and hear the word of God. Can I get an amen? He says, you've been entrusted. God has entrusted you with his precious promises 
of a Messiah who would come and redeem every fractured part of our world. Bless the whole world through Abraham and in gathering all the nations create a new people and reign in righteousness over a people that he will clothe in righteousness. You have those promises. You are the entrusted people. But unfortunately, over time, many Jews in Paul's day lost sight of what they were entrusted with and started living like they were entitled to God's blessing simply by being Jewish. They forgot they were the entrusted people and they started living like the entitled people. Friends, in a moment of just just candid transparency, can't we all just agree that it's so easy, instead of pointing fingers at, at the Jews here for a moment, it's so easy for an entitled attitude to well up in our own hearts. To believe that through our own efforts to attend church or to read the Bible or to live decent moral lives that you and I are entitled to a life that's suffering free and an experience of just uninterrupted blessings. The most dangerous attitude that can set in a church is a spirit of entitlement. Because what it does is it disconnects us from the grace of the gospel, an attitude where we believe my own personal rights and freedoms and privileges are supreme. And anything that interrupts these is evil. That is not from the Lord. If we truly understand the gospel... Folks, can we just make eye contact for a second here? There should be no such thing as an entitled Christian. If we're truly following the weight of Paul's argument, you know what this guy deserves? Wrath. Judgment. If you and I got what we are owed, or what our hearts actually want, then you and I, would not get privileges. We would get judgment. That's the gravity of Paul's argument. And friends, having traveled to places of the world like Myanmar, where Christians are persecuted and prohibited from doing what we're doing here with an open Bible and open hearts, worshiping the Lord, let me say this. We are a privileged people. The fact that you're here today and you can hear God's word without having to worry that authorities will come in and shut down what we're doing is an incredible privilege. May we never take that for granted. But may we never lose sight that the greatest thing we have ever been entrusted with is this. Not our constitutional freedoms and rights, but God's word. God's word. And may we never, as a church, elevate our own personal freedoms 
above the fact that we have been entrusted to go into all the world with this word and represent our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks for letting me get, get worked up there. It's worth getting worked up about because that attitude of entitlement disconnects us from the grace of Christ and the gospel. Now, here's a Lenten application Because maybe, if you're anything like me, that entitled attitude, it can just well up within us. Take some time, and and one of the reasons we've created these guides is so that you can immerse your heart and mind in the scriptures this Lenten season, so that you can once again reconnect with the fact that we have been entrusted with something so sacred, the oracles of God his word of promise to us. All right, as we're following this this passage here, we're going to come to the second set of objections, two more questions that aren't centered around the theme of God's people, but it's going to move to the theme of God's faithfulness. So we see these questions come up in the text in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God by no means? Now, just for context's sake, the sum that Paul refers to in this verse of the Jews or the physical descendants of Abraham, the Hebrew people. Throughout the Old Testament, God had promised over and over again that he would bless the whole world through the Jewish people. This is why Paul will spend so much time in Romans and spill so much ink connecting the dots between Abraham's covenant promise and Israel. Because God has promised to bring salvation to the whole world through the Jews. However, this plan, which weaves throughout the Old Testament, kept bumping up against one major problem. And here it is. God's people were royally messed up and unfaithful. That's the, the, if you want the cliff notes to the Old Testament, that's it. God is faithful, wants to bless the whole world through Abraham, and God's people are a royal hot mess. They are the unfaithful people. In fact, there's this this scene that I love. It's one of my favorite moments in the book of Acts. This moment where this incredible leader that was just a, a lay leader in the church named Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit and he starts preaching this sermon to in this Jewish synagogue to a similar group of people, religious Jews, and it's so intense. This sermon is is so convicting that it gets him executed and killed by the crowd. I've had many experiences, never that. So that's the intensity of Stephen's sermon. But there's this moment where he quotes the book of Exodus, where God says this. This is in Acts chapter 7. Verse 51, it says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Doesn't that sound like Romans chapter 2? 
You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Ouch. Cutting words. Stiff-necked, stubborn, unrepentant people. The entire generation of Exodus wandering in the wilderness rejected God and let that unbelieving heart of stone set in, always resisting God at every turn with a stiff neck. Have you ever had a stiff neck? Man, the older I get, <laughs> stiff necks are rough. You ever woken up and you go through your day like, like this? Like you, you can't even turn, you know, it's this. It's this move, like those days. That is miserable. And it's this portrait, if that's what sin does, it contorts us. It it, it turns us into these stiff people. We think, actually, that that if we just live any way we want, that we'll stop being stiff people. It actually makes us rigid. That's the portrait of God's people in the Old Testament. Constantly stiff, constantly resisting God at every turn, which not only had consequences— For the Jewish people, but listen to this, it had disastrous consequences for God's reputation among the nations. In fact, we read this back in Romans chapter 2, verse 24, but Paul laments and says, for as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you guys. Because of the Jews. So Paul asks here a probing question from this religious group. Does that mean that God has been unfaithful to keep his word and promises? Israel's rebellion, all their stiff-necked sin, does that mean that God's promise is null and void? And Paul's response in verse 4 is an important answer. It's critical. He says, by no means. In Greek, the phrase is meganoito, which is the strongest, most most emphatic negative denial in Greek language. This could be translated, no way, not at all, nonsense. Or some translations read, may it never be, may it never come to pass. Friends, please hear this. God's faithfulness is not measured by our faithfulness. God's faithfulness is not contingent on our faithfulness. That's why Paul will go as far as saying, even if the whole world is filled with liars, God will utterly be faithful and true. Our family, we started watching this this new show that has been actually really fun to watch together. It's called I Can See Your Voice. How many of you, just by a show of hands, you've seen this show before? Okay, like two of you or you're not being honest in church. You're like, I don't watch Netflix. Yeah, right. Uh, Maybe you don't. Then you're more holy than the Kaufmans are. We watched this show which is on Huli, and the basic premise of of the show is there's all these characters up on the stage, and and you have to discern who's the bad singer, who who are the bad singers, and who are the good singers. Just by looking at them and watching them lip sync, 
You have to guess, so our, it's turned into kind of a family game of guessing, you know, like, and the characters are weird. It's like plumber, ballerina, and you have to guess, is that person a good singer or a bad singer? And what's ridiculous about the show is they have a panel of celebrities that help the person making the decisions discern if somebody's a good singer or a bad singer, which they have no idea who is a good singer or a bad singer. But the whole premise of the show is these people are up on the stage and they're just lying. Like many of them, it's actually funny. You're like, I think that person's a really great singer. And then the truth comes out and they they take the microphone and then they start singing. And you're like, that person is just a really good liar. (laughs) What Paul is essentially saying is in, in our world, actually, our world is filled with a lot of deception. And whose voice are you going to trust? Whose voice are you going to trust? And bank everything on. The scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 6, 18, that it's actually impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to be unfaithful to his promise. It's an impossible thing for God to lie. And yet before we rush ahead and conclude, if we're following this argument then, then what's the point of living faithfully? If God will always be faithful, in spite of our unfaithfulness, what's the point of faithfulness? Why not just live any way you want? Which Paul will address next. But I think we've all witnessed what happens when stories of pastors or Christian leaders who've been unfaithful Come out. G.K. Chesterton once said that the best argument against Christianity is Christians. That's the, the, our world's best argument against Christianity is Christians. It's an observation that hits me hard. Both when I do something unloving and stupid and sinful, but also when Christian groups on social media or other pastors with a platform or self-appointed prophets say or do things that are unloving, unbiblical, or downright sinful. And while we could certainly bemoan all the ways that Christians are blowing it these days, at the end of the day, I believe the opposite of what G.K. Chesterson said is also true. Not only that the best argument against Christianity is Christians, but that the best argument for Christianity is also Christians. Which would explain why the Apostle Paul tells the church in Rome, don't think that you can just go around living any way that you want. The way you and I conduct our lives, it matters to the witness of the gospel and the reputation of Christ. So here's a Lenten application. Ask the Lord to reveal an area of your life where you can be more faithful. Maybe it's in a relationship with a family member or a coworker, or it's how you spend your time or your money. Ask the Lord and say, Lord, show me an area where I can be more faithful which will lead us to the final objections 
that this crowd is going to bring up questions not that are, are centered around God's faithfulness, but actually God's righteousness and our response. So in verses 5 to 8, let's read how Paul sums up this back and forth question and answer section by bringing everything to a T around the theme of God's righteousness. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? There were people that were going around and accusing Paul the Apostle of teaching a gospel that said, essentially, if our sin only serves to enhance and amplify how righteous and gracious is then why not sin and lie and live any way that you want? Because our sin is actually just helping God appear more glorious and gracious, which is actually a heretical form of Christianity that began circulating in the first century called antinomianism. If you want to impress somebody, write that down. Antinomianism. Here is a simple definition of antinomianism. It essentially claimed that Christians were freed by grace from obeying the moral imperatives of the law. And Paul's going to come back to this again in his letter in chapters 6 and 7. So I'm not going to unpack it all. But Paul's going to bring down a sledgehammer on this slanderous accusation that he's going around And essentially saying, because you guys are the grace crowd, you can live any way you want, and it doesn't matter. In fact, you can see Paul getting worked up here and emotional, once once again exclaiming, no way, nonsense, may it never be. And for those that are going around teaching this, their condemnation is just which is intense. And although these words are strong and forceful, it's important to know that Paul's not responding in this, in this way simply to protect his own ego or the reputation of the Apostle Paul. Rather, he's concerned that this lie is going to harm the church's witness and the reputation of Jesus in Rome. In fact, I've never saw this until I was actually camped out in this passage this week. But did you notice that the sin that that Paul addresses in these verses, they're all sins of the tongue. They're all verbal sins, lying and slandering. To say and spread untruth things about others in an unloving manner. That's what the Bible means by slander which if you remember back in chapter 1 of Romans, slander is on the list of sins that God condemns. 
In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus himself will say these words about slander. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. So let me ask you this. Have you ever been on the receiving end of slander? Have you ever experienced this? I know I certainly have. Most pastors have. Most of us, if we're being honest, have probably both experienced this and more likely participated in slander. It's seriously one of the most gut-wrenching experiences to have something that you've said twisted and and turned into a false accusation against your character, your conviction. And yet this is one of those sins that's so commonplace in our culture that we oftentimes are unaware how much slander is happening in Christian circles. Online and over text threads, for sure, but also in living rooms, in coffee shops, and sometimes church lobbies. So here is a Lenten call to action, an application to take this beyond just being words on a page to your own heart. Ask the Lord to show you if there is an area in your life where you're either personally engaging or watching others engage in slander. Maybe it would serve some of you well to actually abstain from social media or certain platforms where you're tempted to either engage or just be a bystander to slander. Or others might need to go to somebody they've wounded with their words and seek out forgiveness. I want to say, if you are feeling the weight of conviction set in in this moment, don't ignore it. Or, Or allow shame to creep in. Because if we're following where Paul wants to take us in his letter, it's all leading to one place in verse Nine, Paul's going to ask a question, which is not from the religious crowd. It's his question. And it's the most important question in this section right here. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. Because we are all under sin. That's where Paul is taking us as a community and the gospel reminds us no matter how religious or moral or put put together we think we are every single one of us is under sin and we need a savior who's faithful and true and extends grace to unfaithful stiff-necked slanderers and sinners folks we have a savior And his name is Jesus Christ. But until we abandon any sense that we're better than others, we'll never feel the full saving power of the gospel in our heart and mind. Amen? Amen. Amen.